Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're talking to Will Dean, author of Dark Pines, about how a bad first attempt at a novel prompted his success, the impact of setting both for your book and where you write, and how to create a fully formed character who is way out of your comfort zone. An elk emerges from the overgrown pines, and it is monstrous. Half a ton, maybe more. I stamp the brake, my truck juddering as the winter tyres bite into gravel, and then I nudge my ponytail and switch on my hearing aids. I get the manufacturer's jingle, and then I can hear. The elk is 30 metres away from me, and he's standing there, grey and shaggy and big as hell. My engine's idling. I think of Dad's accident 12 years ago, about his car, what was left of it, and then I punch the horn with my fist. Noise floods my head, but it's not the real sound, not like you'd hear. I get a noise amplified by the plastic curls behind my ears. The horn does its job, and the bull elk trots away down the track, with his balls hanging low between his skinny grey legs. I speed up a little and follow him, and my heart's beating too hard and too fast. The elk walks into a patch of dappled sun up ahead, and then stops. He's prehistoric, a giant, completely wild, ancient, and taller than my rented pickup. I break and then thump the horn again, but he doesn't look scared. I'm panting now, sweat beading on my brow, not enough air in the truck. There are no police here, no headlights behind me, and none in front. The fur that coats his antlers glows in the sun, and then he swings his heavy head around to face me, his posture changes. Utgard Forest darkens all around me, and he stamps his hoof down and breaks a thin veneer of ice covering a pothole. My headlights pick out a splash of dirty water hitting his fur, and then he looks straight at me, and he drops his head, and he charges. I break and pull the gear stick to reverse and slam the thick rubber sole of my boot down on the accelerator. My scream sounds alien. The truck pushes backwards and opens up a clear space between me and the bull elk, between my face and his face, between my threaded eyebrows and his rock-hard antlers. I lift my phone out of my pocket and place it on my lap, even though everybody knows there's no reception in Utgard Forest. My eyes flip between the windscreen and the rearview mirror. I'm trying to look in front and behind at the same time, and there's a flash of movement in the trees, something grey, a person maybe, but then it's gone. This is all my fault. I should never have driven after this elk. I see dull sky through his antlers, and somewhere inside I reach out for Dad. I hit potholes and fallen branches, and those black eyes are still there in my headlights. Thirty kilometres an hour in reverse gear, my phone falls off my lap and rattles around in the footwell. I reverse faster. The light levels are dropping, and the elk's still coming straight at me. My left tyre gets caught by the edge of a ditch and I have to turn hard to jump out of it. And then his antlers touch my bumper, metallic scratches piercing my ears, and I can't see a damn thing. I feel a stick of lip balm digging into my thigh and then my mirrors flash and it is someone else's headlights. Behind me in the distance there's a truck or a tractor, something driving straight at me. It should be a welcome sight, but it's not. This track's only wide enough for one of us. The antlers scrape my bonnet again and I wince at the screech. My mouth's dry, and I'm hot in my sweater. I'm reversing into an 
crash with an elk in my face, and that's when I hear the gunshot. The elk bolts to the trees, and he jumps a ditch and flees into the darkness of the woods. The last thing I see are his rear legs as Utgard Forest takes him back. Hi, Will. Thank you so much for joining us on the Riff Ruff podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Oh, we're so pleased to have you. Um, for anyone who has yet to pick up their copy of Dark Pines, could you tell us a little about the plot? So, um, Dark Pines is kind of a cross between Twin Peaks and Broadchurch. Ooh, <laughs> exactly. <a> yeah, <laughs> it's kind. Of, it's set in a isolated small town in central Sweden, very claustrophobic. And uh, my main character, Tuva Moodison, is a deaf journalist, terrified of nature. And she is the sole reporter in this newspaper in the small town. And a body is found deep in the woods on the first day of the annual elk hunt. And Tuva Moodison sets out in her pickup truck to investigate the crime. I love that she drives What's a pickup that? truck as well. Yeah. But we'll, we'll cut. I've got so many questions about her, so we'll come on to her okay. in a bit. An elk hunt. I like the sound and, of yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it, it opens, doesn't it, with a massive elk? It does. I, I'm still kind of excited and freaked out by elk hunts because I live in the middle of this enormous forest. Um, that's This is how I came up with the idea of the book, actually. I was out playing with my toddler in my kind of swamp garden in the middle of the woods and high caliber rifle fire was ricocheting through the forest. I could hear it. Boom, boom, boom. And I, the weird thing was I was like, this is normal. I wasn't yeah. I wasn't surprised. <laughs> Having lived in London for 15 years, this had become normal. And then I suddenly thought, maybe all of this gunfire could be a good cover for a murder. Mm. Like, who knows that these bullets are intended for elk? Ooh. Yes. I, I've not thought Ooh. of it that way, but yeah. It's, it's such a... I mean, it, there are some parts of South London where I don't think it's that unusual okay. to hear gunfire. But, um, but yeah. Where do you live? I thought you lived in Ballam, mate. <laughs> I do. <laughs> some parts of Ballam are terrifying. Um, so, wow, it sounds incredible. So, um, so we understand you've written a novel before Dark Pines. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, but ne- but never published it. A bad novel. And I, I didn't. I thank God it's not published. What was yeah, it about? it's locked in a drawer. I don't even want to say. It's just. A, <laughs> it was a big sprawling mess. It was it was uh, told from the point of view of seven different characters in seven different countries over two years. So it was a monster. Okay. And I worked on it so much for a few years. And I, I, I kind of destroyed it and built it up again and rewrote it. And that was my kind of master's in creative writing for free in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't do those kind of cool courses, you know, the Faber course, course and the Curtis Brown course. So I did this, which was just me pulling my hair out, trying to make a bad book that was always going to be a bad book, a good book. And it's better, <laughs> but it's not a good book. So it's locked away and that's fine. And the reaction of writing that monster was Dark Pines is very simple. It's told from one person's point of view during two weeks in one small town. Wow, you yeah. really reined it back in. I really did, yeah. <laughs> so what was it about, what was about, what was that what appealed to you about writing Dark Pines? Or is that what, what was it kind of on, what, when was the moment when you decided, maybe I'll just leave that one in that drawer? <laughs> it was when, honestly, it was when I was submitting to agents, to slush piles, and I started getting people interested because it was getting a bit better. So people were starting to request the full manuscript. And then I suddenly had this panic, like, do I want this to be my debut novel? So I withdrew it. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to send this out anymore. I'm going to just 
put this in a drawer and I'm going to start something fresh and see if that's better. Oh, wow. And Dark and the the last book, the first book, the locked away dead book, took years. And Dark Pines, the first draft, flooded out very very fast, in like four weeks, and instantly four I could weeks. see that it was, yeah, that's amazing. It was, <laughs> well, it's a it's a riffraff record because we try and keep track of how quick some of our authors write and some of our authors write very very quickly. Yeah. But four weeks. Would you agree, Ames? That's a yeah, that's really seriously impressive. Very I wasn't impressive. expecting it to be four weeks. I thought it might be six months, but it was like an exorcism. It was like being possessed. It just flooded out really, really fast. And I, I wrote it in my my toddler's naps back then. So I had like I was on parental leave. I had a morning nap of about two and a half hours. I wrote a chapter in his morning nap, and then in his afternoon nap, I wrote a second chapter. And I still follow that pattern now, even though he's like three and a half and he's not napping anymore. So I still do that two chapters a day, and it's a nice rhythm because I get a break in the middle, and I'm. It's also very, very intense. So I'm exhausted at the end of the month, um, but I like the the fact that I'm immersed in the story really intensely. Have you have you heard about Kazuo Ishiguro's like the crash? What he how what he does? Yes, like, it's is, kind of similar. Do you I mean, I'm not comparing myself to the Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> I promise sure, sure, in any way. <laughs> but I, I had read his his piece in the Guardian before, and I was like, wow, that's impossible. Mm. And then I kind of just forgot about it. And then this happened in Dark Pines. It just flooded out. But kind of in the same way as, as, as he was, I was immersed even when I wasn't actually typing. Like on in the evenings, I was just thinking about the book. I was just in Tuva's head. And I like that because I can't do that for six months. You know, I would be too weird. You know, my marriage would break up. It would just be too weird. But for four weeks, I can manage. Yeah. And my wife can manage. Yeah, <laughs> it was okay. Do you think that there's something that writers have to wait for when they're writing a book that they're like, right, this is the one? Because, you know, I think so many writers have false starts. Mm. And in your case, it just flooded out. What do you think it is that can that writers can be like, right, ah, oh, this is the idea to go for? That's a really good question. And I have no answer for you at <laughs> all because I only know my own experience. And my own experience is it took one bad book which was so bad and so painful, and my reaction was so extreme to write something completely the opposite, that's what made it a good book. But it could have easily taken five or ten books. And I think what probably separates writers from non-writers is just keeping going, keeping working at it, mm-hmm. you know, going, getting through those really hard times, those really lonely times, all of those rejections, and actually getting to the place where it's like, oh my goodness, this seems like it could be a good book. Mm-hmm which is a nice moment. And it takes as long as it takes, I think. Go. Uh, okay. I was going to say, <laughs> oh, we're so polite to I, each <laughs> um, I was going to say, you know, what a lot of our writers, te- one of their top tips is to put their book in a drawer. Yeah. And you've done that. Yes. D- will you be revisiting this, this seven No, narrative? that's locked. No? <laughs> it's so locked away. I'm, I, I keep saying maybe I will revisit it one day as a script or a screenplay. Oh, cool. Because it lends itself more to that medium. But like I can't see that happening anytime soon. It's too hideous, and I'm too afraid of it. I bet it's all right. Yeah. My <laughs> wife likes it better than Dark Pines. Oh really? Yeah. But... And what drew you to writing in the first place? I think it's like a combination of a thousand different things. But when I was a kid, I was a kind of a weird, nerdy kid. I used to be on my own a lot. My imagination, I lived in my own bubble, in my own head. I was like, I had a very vivid imagination. I was writing a lot as a kid and reading a lot and rereading a lot, which is still something I love to do now. And I, I guess I found a lot of comfort in reading back then. And then through my work in London, my kind of non-creative jobs that I was doing to support myself, I was always, my release was always in story form. 
whether that was movies or writing weird little poems or reading in my lunch hour in like a secret park near the Barbican I used to go to. I needed that to keep me balanced. And then when I was when I moved to Sweden full time, I was like, it's time. I need to start being serious about this and write a full length piece. Mm-hmm. And because obviously Dark Pines is set, it sounds like it's set somewhere very similar to where you live. Yeah. Do you think it was kind of that move that sparked the the kind of that set the novel in motion kind of being immersed in that environment and suddenly a story about that sort of for sure i think so um but the first bad book locked in the drawer was also written in the in the forest so i had to get that out of my system and that was kind of my first cliched reaction to living in that place and then the, the dark pines is more of a measured kind of i think yeah i'd lived there a few years i'd reflected i was more familiar with real Swedes and how they live and how they talk and how they work and how they interact and how they how they live with the nature you know and and the demands and the the fears that are out there and I, I I'm more familiar now with the small town dynamic in a in a because I was very familiar with the British small time small town dynamic which mm. I find fascinating and mm. dark yeah. but the Swedish one is slightly different so yeah I yeah. Love do, you, do you think to be able to write sort of Scandi noir you need to do you reckon people that don't have the same experience of living where you've lived and that kind of thing would still be able to do it because it's obviously such a popular genre it's a good question i think before i moved there i could have done it but it wouldn't have been as authentic mm. and i don't know how important that is but i think the little observations i make when i'm walking around with my little nerdy notebook they do help make the story feel more real and as a as many readers read a lot of Scandinavian and a lot of crime, if there's a one observation which is wrong, perhaps because you don't live there, that could chuck you out of the story. Mm. And that's something as a reader I hate, being mm. thrown out of a story, whether it's because the point of view is from a child and something said which is clearly not childlike, that really annoys me mm. and throws me out of the story. So, yeah, maybe on that level. Mm. I really hate when you can suddenly hear the writer's voice and the writer's little niggle and they've decided that their character is is going to hate that thing too mm-hmm. and then you can suddenly you know it's the writer who's trying to make a point <laughs> it's a fine own. line though isn't it because sometimes that can be such a, that can add so, so much to a character but then other times it can be just you know when yeah. it's very overt you know when they've created a rant a character but then suddenly something comes out and you're just like i think you're just having a bit of a rant about something i find that very i jarring. i agree and i think my my main character in the first locked in the draw book suffered from a lot of that like he was just me but five centimeters taller yeah. <laughs> and that's a very I that head of hair, though, yeah, yeah but that's a very dull character actually to read so so yeah tuva is like a complete opposite to me in mm. many ways and that's quite refreshing and that means i don't fall into that trap as much mm. like she doesn't have my niggles she has her own lots of them so. i wonder whether every writer has to kind of write about themselves to start off with before they can yeah. to get that kind of out of their system a little bit before they can that's probably true yeah yeah, yeah that's a very good point yeah it's and, and and Amy mentioned Scandi Noir as a genre. Do you find that those sort of genres and categorizations helpful? Do you think it kind of makes your book sit well in a sort of, you know, readers know what they're getting? Or do you kind of find it a bit of a hindrance? I find genres quite difficult. Like when I wrote Dark Pines, I didn't know what it was. I sent it to, it had a different title. I sent it to agents. I was like, what is this? When I met the agents who offered me representation, I asked them all, what genre is this book? And they were all like, it's kind of crime crime thriller atmospheric scandal but it's difficult to slot most books into a 
into a category. So I think it's interesting from and useful from like a marketing perspective. But as a reader and as a writer, I kind of ignore genres. And I like it when books cross over genres. Yeah. So, yeah. And also that's the good thing about fiction, isn't it? Is that you can you can make it whatever you want it to be. So that's yeah. kind of part of the magic of it, is that you can just be like, well, I'm going to put all the genres in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In some kind of way, yeah. although that sounds like maybe more like your first book. <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> the dead locked in the drawer, <laughs> which I'm now desperate to read, is not what we talk about. Um, so your heroine, Tuva, yeah. such an interesting character. Firstly, why did you decide to make her a woman? Okay, that was partly a reaction to the Locked in the Draw Dead book because he was so similar to me. So I wanted somebody different, but also that main character came fairly fully formed. So the first thing I start with when I think of a story, when I start dreaming up a story, is the setting, which I think is different to a lot of writers. So I see the place, and then I kind of zoom in, and I saw the forest and a gravel track snaking through the forest. I zoomed in some more and I saw a pickup truck driving on this track. I looked into the window and I saw Tuva, who was a young, deaf, blonde journalist driving this pickup truck. And that was my story. Like, what is Tuva doing in this setting, in this place? Oh, wow. What, and you say that you're you're visualising it. Yeah. You know, you're like, eyes closed, music on. Like, what's the kind of, like, creative process? Like, or is it just, it's just like, you know, just that's... Just There's a few things. I, I like to kind of think about it a lot before I go to sleep because I find that a really sparky creative time. Mm. So those those minutes where you're kind of half asleep, half awake, I love to start just letting my mind wander. Mm. And then once I have a basic story arc in my head and I haven't written anything down yet, then I'll take a train journey for one night up to the north of Sweden, or not the north, up to the centre of Sweden, to, to Karlstad, where, the area where the book is set. And I'll have my notebook and two earplugs. I'll get on the train. It's like a four-hour journey. I'll plug in. I'll stare out of the window. Phone's off. And I'll try and let my mind wander and flesh out the characters mm. and see what happens. And let them kind of just develop on their own and see what happens. And then I stay up in a weird little hotel in this weird little town. And then the next day I come back down on the train. So I'm not away from my family for too long. Yeah. Because it's quite a luxury to be able to go away and just do that. But I get so much done. I come yeah. back with pretty much a full notebook and the story is kind of ready to go. And then I give it about a week just to kind of make sure that I haven't made a huge mistake. And then I start writing the first draft. I love that. Isn't that great? I'm kind of like, I want to go and book a train ticket. To, <laughs> I'll go and put a plane ticket to Sweden. And talk to Sweden. <laughs> that's, that's, it's quite funny, though, like, that, that you say about kind of like ideas happening kind of on the move and that kind of stuff. That's what Felicia Yap. So mm. she she like did, would write a lot on buses and okay. a lot on kind of like because that kind of like she put like something like the alchemy of movement or something really. Oh, she like, said it way better than way we better wow. did. Yeah, That's like, nice. yeah. I, mean, yeah. Well, I wonder whether that kind of like. That is, it's interesting as well that you say about thinking about it at night because that's kind of when your subconscious is, is um, most active. Yeah. So I try and write things down at night and then you're spo- it's supposed to, you think about it overnight and then you get ideas in the morning. Yeah. So I try and do that. So I suppose like it's all about kind of training that part of your brain to kind of like. Exactly. Come up and with I things. think, yeah. I think as a writer, you're kind of like trying to get back to a childlike state in your own head because that's where your imagination was at its most original and vivid. Mm. So I think that's what happens just before you go to sleep. You know, everything's kind of weird and, and mushed up mm. and you have, you're processing experiences, but you're also dreaming. So I like that time. Yeah. And then I'm obviously kind of 
making notes in the middle of the night as well <laughs> trying to do that discreetly don't <laughs> <laughs> wake your yeah. is it your son how old is my he? son yeah he's three and a half yeah, yeah. so we want to keep him asleep yeah um and tuva is deaf as you mentioned tuva is deaf which is obviously quite a unique character trait yeah. what prompted that um i think subconsciously over the years i have thought hmm it's strange considering how many people in the world are deaf or hard of hearing, how few characters I see portrayed on TV, film, and in books. Mm. So I think I had that thought at the back of my head. And then, like I say, I zoomed into this pickup truck in this place, and I saw Tuva, and she had hearing aids. Mm. So I didn't know how deaf she was at that point, but that came to me. And, yeah, that's that's she came fully formed yeah. with all of her very strong opinions and her issue with her mother and her deafness. And her ambition and everything else, it kind of came as a package. But when so. you was it when you were holding in on her in the car, or that was kind of things that you developed on the train journey. Yeah, both really. Yeah, yeah on cool. the train journey, and also when I'm writing the first draft, because she develops, you know, as as that progresses, and when I'm editing. But she, the first draft, when it was finished, like the story was there, the dialogue was there, the setting was there, the atmosphere was there. Tuva definitely was pretty much there, mm. but the plot, I don't have much plot in my first draft. Like, I have the story, but very few clues, reveals, red herrings, all the mechanics I find quite difficult. For me, that's the most challenging part of writing these books. So that comes later. Mm-hmm. How many how many drafts did you have of the book? Lots. Um, like, like about 20. Okay. Yeah. I suppose if you've got to get those little subtle hints in about little things that kind of like, that's it's such a special talent, isn't mm. it? And that's only going to come from knowing where those things are likely to happen and like how do you map anything out i always think visuals are so important for like especially if you've got kind of like quite an intricate plot or there are clues like that do you have any kind of i don't map out but i do draw so i i kind of sketch my characters faces and i sketch buildings and the forest itself so i that helps me to see what the houses look like and things like that Mm. amazing Mm. they'd be fun to look at (laughs) <laughs> no, you can never see them. <laughs> Are they also in the drawer? <laughs> no, no, they're I, not in the drawer. I'm now imagining you have this huge drawer where all of your like it's taking over just, the house. Yeah, yeah. Like, just, giant <laughs> just bad drawer. projects. And you mentioned as well that her name Tuva is is quite unusual, even for. I mean, obviously, you know, in Britain it's unusual yeah. in the UK, but it, in Sweden it's quite unusual as well. It is. Did you did you specifically want her to be quite an unusual character or did or was it just, like you say it all just came and she was there and that was her name and I don't know about unusual but I think as a reaction to me writing such an incredibly dull character i.e. me in the first book locked in the drawer I wanted somebody vivid mm. so perhaps not unusual but somebody that it's clear like as a reader you're going to be spending a hundred thousand words in her head mm. it's all told from her point of view so she needs to have interesting opinions mm. she needs to be somebody who stands out from the crowd mm. so that's i was conscious of that yeah, yeah. sorry and um, what um what, <laughs> what challenge well being too polite today what kind of challenges did you find um writing a character like that you a woman yeah. and also someone who's deaf like what did, how did you how did you go about making sure that was authentic okay good question so first of all i felt this huge responsibility once i'd seen tuva i was like oh my god what am i letting myself in for here i need to take this very very seriously and so i did a a ton of research did lots of research in reading uh, deaf bloggers reading uh, articles by deaf people watching youtube channels um, hosted by deaf people that was really really interesting and then in terms of writing a woman 
I just kind of did my best. Mm. You know, I think if you're ever, as a writer, you're always going to, at some point in your career, write something that's outside of your own experience. And I think you just need maximum empathy and care. So that's what I tried. That's what I aim to do. And then my first reader is my wife. So she's a Swedish woman. So that is helpful to me to get her view on things. And she doesn't really like crime thrillers. So that's useful as well because she's not getting carried away with the plot. Yeah. You know, she couldn't care less about the story. She's, But she gives really good feedback in terms of, hmm, I'm not sure if Tuva would do this or I think Tuva might do this. So yeah. that's really helpful. Really handy, yeah. yeah. And then before um, the kind of the final manuscript was ready to be made into proofs um, I have a friend who's a deaf blogger and she read it through and did a kind of sensitivity read which was fantastic and she was brilliant so and did you make changes off the back of both of your wife and and your friends not so many of my wife's yeah. comments because um, things are very things are personal as well as like there are different types of women just like there are different types of people so some of the things i agreed with and i was like okay i agree i need to change that and some of the things were like i don't think tuva would do that i think you would do that but not tuva whereas with my uh deaf blogger friend she was she was brilliant and she did pick out some things which i just didn't know and i was wrong on things about you know technical details regarding hearing aids and things mm. so i i did ma implement all of those changes what's her name your friend so we can she's definitely girly on twitter we'd love to link back to her yeah she's brilliant it's <laughs> noting it down yeah. <laughs> sorry yeah sorry me and amy are writing <laughs> furiously so you've said that you live quite essentially in a in the middle of the woods yeah which is a lot of writers fantasies you know just yeah. like that peace and quiet and stuff yeah. do you think that's um like, how is that? How is that experience? Like, It's definitely not a fantasy. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it turns out to be, like a lot of people say, oh, it's great, you must have so many hours to write. And yeah. actually, I, I do have more than when I lived in London, but I have to do a lot of like practical maintenance stuff that I didn't even factor in myself. So I have to do a lot of chopping of wood. I have to clear ditches. I have, to, I have this gravel track that's a mile long. Um, which is ours, so I have to fill the holes in with like a wheelbarrow and a spade every week and clear the snow in the winter. So there's a lot of that stuff which I never did when I lived in Earl's Court in a yeah. one-bedroom flat. So, it would have been um, pretty odd if you were there with a wheelbarrow. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah. So I have, I have like the same amount of time, but then I do have less distractions. Like there's no bars or theatres or cinemas. We eat out maybe once a year. Oh, wow. So in that time, I can read more. So mm -hmm. I probably... It's, it's not that I have more writing time, but I have a lot more reading time, mm. which I, I value a lot. So. Do you have any... What have you been reading? What did you read to kind of maybe help you write this? Or what, or, or what have you been reading recently? <laughs> to help, I don't think I read anything specifically to help me write this, because I think that would have been dangerous. Mm. So when I'm about to write a first draft, I stop reading new material, new books, and I start rereading, which is like this old passion of mine. Yeah. So about a month before I'll stop reading new stuff and I'll just reread old novels. Yeah. And then I kind of get into the kind of a weird fugue state, like a weird trance, and then I'm ready to write the first draft. I love your kind of like the, the process. Like mm. it's, it's so kind of like you know working out. You've obviously worked out what works for you. Yeah. And like and and getting into the right like that's. I feel like that's an ongoing battle for me to kind of okay. figure out where. And so it's it's nice to see how much attention you've paid to what works for you. So okay. That yeah. Means like mm -hmm. it's inspiring. It all came from all of that pain from the terrible <laughs> book. So. Well, um, what um, 
Go on, sorry, I've, I've been uh, on. No, it's just... <laughs> I mean, maybe we just have so many questions. Um, so I wanted to kind of just hone in again back on the mechanics of writing a book like this that okay. is a thriller, that you have to keep the audience guessing, that you have to ha- have the red hose, and those are technical things. Mm. Um, I, I kind of just like, you know, what are the things that you need to... that writers should be including? You know, what are the... Cause, because as a non-thriller writer myself, it's so fascinating. Mm. Just, so what are the important criteria that well, you need to have in? I think a lot of modern thrillers, they have more action, more gore than my book. My book is quite low-key creepy because that's what I like to read. So it's quite tense and it's quite creepy and it's quite atmospheric because that that's my, like the, my favourite books are all like that. Um, but the, the, in terms of the mechanics, what I find interesting and really challenging is looking at all of the characters in the book and finding motives for them and motivations for them like what drives this person and i when i'm when i'm going through it like edit seven edit ten and this is way before i've sent it to my agent or my editor this is just me self-editing i'm trying to make every single character the hero of their own story if that makes sense so i'm trying to find their motive like what's their motive in life generally where are their grudges what are they disappointed by but also could they conceivably have committed this crime and why and that needs to be realistic because if it's kind of a whodunit an Agatha Christie style whodunit everybody needs some kind of motive and I find that really interesting because in a, in, a, in any setting but especially in a small town over the years people do have motives for all sorts of dark things because there are that, that network of relationships and lies and secrets that exist yeah. So when you say that you're rereading, yeah, um, are you when you're rereading stuff, you're looking for how the sort of how they would portray the red herrings and how they would do that kind of stuff? Because is that book um, reading like a writer, isn't there? Like yeah. Francine something, Francine yeah. Pascal or something, which is really I've I've, I've downloaded it. I haven't read that. <laughs> but but it's, it's all about kind of like as a writer what you should look for in other people's work. Basically. Okay. Okay. So I just wonder whether like that is is that what you're looking for? How other writers have created tension? How like very like specifics about form when you're rereading? I don't do that too much. Like overtly, mm. I don't like to unpick too many books because I, if I'm reading a book and I'm enjoying it, I just want to be anchored into that story. Mm. Like I'm a reader when I'm reading. The only time when I'm a writer when I'm reading is when I'm reading something that's not good or that I don't like, mm. and then I'll be like, hmm. Okay, I'm not really in this story, but I'm going to carry on for a little while. What don't I like about this? What's not working? And that's interesting. That's useful. Yeah. But when I'm rereading before I start writing a first draft, I'm rereading stuff that's not really in my genre. Okay. Because I want to be just like away from the book and away from other things that could be influencing it. So I read more uh, historical stuff, literary stuff, and things, you know, even from my childhood, mm. just different things. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And. Oh, I've just forgotten the question that I was going to ask. <laughs> it's literally on the tip of my tongue. Quick, say something else and then it will come back to me. Okay, so from the opening scene um, with the elk... Yes. <laughs> um, your narrative remains dramatic and intriguing so the whole way through. So how how important is a, a like an opening scene? Like, Because, like, you know, so many authors that we've had have written these big, amazing scenes. Like, was that something... Did you start with that opening scene? Or is no. that something that you came to? Yeah. I start with the ending. Okay. Uh, so every book, I kind of start with the setting. Like, what is this place? And what bad thing is happening mm-hmm. here? And I also then get the ending. And then I start constructing what happened to lead up to that ending. Okay. So, and probably as soon as I've finished kind of understanding the ending, I'll write the opener. 
Yeah. And what I like in an opening scene is to is to grab the reader's attention, but not like in a body dead body on page one type mm. way, because that can be a little bit clumsy and heavy-handed. So I like to set the atmosphere. Like I want to put you right in the heart of the story. So you're with Tuva on page one, you know, in her pickup truck, doing her thing in the setting that you're going to be in for the rest of the book. Yeah. I don't let you out of that place. How many how many attempts at the first at the first scene were there? Loads, yeah. loads of attempts at every scene. <laughs> <laughs> like I, the rewriting is is a huge part of it. Yeah. yeah. Did, that, you, did you write? Sorry, yeah, that go. was my question. Yeah. Sorry, Ames, to no, interrupt. Me, but that was that because so you said that you know the first draft just came out blurb four weeks, but that there wasn't plot. Yeah. so much did you find that you had to work at that was that where the kind of craft came in a bit more and was you know you were then making more conscious decisions of right I'm gonna or I don't want it to be that person for instance so I'm gonna kind of make sure I put some clues in but then discount them here or, you know absolutely was that lots hard of that work? yeah like the first the four week first draft is quite a quite a fun and explosive creative experience I love it. I really get a buzz out of it. But then the rest, the next year when I'm rewriting, it's just hard work. It's just a day job. It's just me, you know, eight hours a day, deleting stuff and thinking about stuff and looking out the window and rewriting stuff. And that part is where it becomes a book, really. And um, so you've written a piece for Amanda Reynolds. Yes. Um, who obviously oh. read at the Riff Raff, her fantastic bit close to me. Yep. And... I saw that because you had run out of space to store your first drafts that you burnt them. I do. We have a lot of bonfires <laughs> yeah. anyway. Um, we're like kind of cooking outside and stuff. And yeah, we burn. I burn all my first drafts That's and incredible. second drafts. Yeah. And third drafts Is that and quite then. therapeutic? Yeah. yeah I cool. kind of, I've said goodbye to them by <laughs> yeah. then. I don't hang on to them or fetishize them in any way, you know. It's all about the end book. Yeah. So I'll keep a... A few drafts, like draft maybe one, ten, and twenty, or something like that. But the rest, yeah, I can't keep them because the house would just fill up with this flammable material. <laughs> so I burn it. That's because I think a lot of writers would actually would bulk at that and think I have to keep everything. And what if there's something really I need from draft seven now that I'm in draft twenty-two? You know, and I desperately need that. You You're know? absolutely right. Because when I tweeted a photo of that years ago, the bonfire. I had a lot of writer friends saying, what are you doing? Yeah. I could never do this. That's fine. Everybody does it in their yeah. own way. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. again, you've figured out what works for you and what like mm. what you're happy to do. And yes, yeah. that's, that's cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and we like cooking sausages outside. So. Yeah. <laughs> great kindling. Yeah. <laughs> My is. creativity is great kindling. So what's next? Next is Tuva Book Two. Oh, Which you're already writing, aren't you? Mm. Yeah. It's yeah. with my agent right now. It's called Red Snow. Cool. And uh, we stay in Gavrik. We stay in this small town. And we stay with some of the characters. And we have a, a load of fresh new characters come in. And it's about dark, creepy things happening again. It's a bit kind of Midsummer Murders, but in Sweden. But better. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully dark, better, better, and creepy. And, 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 yeah, and Midsummer yeah. Murders. Yeah. <laughs> How did you find that kind of creeping, same setting, some of the same characters? Obviously, introducing new ones is going to freshen it up. But, yep. you know, how do you kind of produce something that's so similar in so, so many ways but make it completely fresh and different I was really afraid of this mm. and really worried about it like I read a lot of it's difficult to write a series and know what to leave behind and know what to include and not have spoilers about the book before so I didn't know if I could do it well but it's turned out okay I think um, and I enjoyed having some of my characters back you know the wood carving sisters are back and I, I really like having that kind of small town feel where mm. A, a, a big character from book one 
in book two might just walk past Tuva in the street. And a reader who's followed it will notice that. Yeah, that's what I like about Irvine Welsh. Yeah. Like, you know how he'll like put all his characters. And like, that's so clever, isn't it? Like just the kind of little bits and pieces where you see those glimpses of characters. It is. And that's what I love about Stephen King as well. Mm-hmm. You know, places like Castle Rock and his mention of Shawshank in multiple books. Yeah. It's great because as a reader, I'm just like, oh, this is so real. Well, they've yeah. just, you've created a world, yeah. Ben, haven't you? And, and weird things like someone that you've had a huge thing with just suddenly is just a glimpse. And that's how it is in, you know. So, so you do, do you keep files on, I suppose, obviously not if you love burning things, but like, <laughs> do you keep files on all these characters or is it just, it's all just in your head? I don't really keep files on the characters, but I know yeah. them really well. Okay. There's not that many characters in each book because that also helps with the claustrophobia. Mm. So I know them pretty well. I know where they live. I know what they do. I know what they look like. You know enough. Yeah. 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 And do you think that this is... is Tuva going to continue in lots more books or do you think you might try another genre it sounds like you read really widely and, I do you know. I think Tuva will continue because I love writing it you oh. know I feel very strongly about spending four weeks inside of a head each year it's really fun so I'd like to write maybe six plus Tuva books I have them kind of composting in my brain right now uh, but I'm also I also wrote a first draft of a standalone novel set in the Lincolnshire Fens and I wrote that last autumn as kind of a palate cleanser, because I suddenly had the fear that I can only write Tuva. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I need to write something different, with yeah. a different main character in a different place, a different country. And that was really fun. And that came out in four weeks as well. And that, I have no idea when I'll have time to edit it and write it. It might be in five years' time. But it was fun to oh, do. Lovely. Just, uh, it seems to me like, you know, like you're very clearly you know a writer you know you you kind of it's, it's something that seems to be in everything that you do and like do, what what was what job were you doing before you I did loads of weird jobs so I, I studied law at the LSE and then I was like everybody was going into their internships and I, I freaked out I was like oh I don't want to spend my whole life in an office so I worked in a chocolate shop cool. I worked as a barman I worked on a building site as a labor I did loads of weird things and I ended up in the end working in the city as a kind of designer of uh, trading platforms so I was kind of designing and building and managing different trading platforms so I had a little niche which was nice because I had my own little team my boss was a good person he was great we had nice people but it was the city and I didn't like the city at all so it did feel a little bit draining despite being around good people so I was always planning my kind of my exit and were you writing over the course of that time. No, I wasn't writing. I was reading a lot. And I was writing little things, short stories. I've always written long-form letters. Cool. And really enjoyed that. Um, and then I kind of knew I was going to write books eventually. So I didn't start writing full-length novels until I was 32. I'm 38 now. And during that job in the city, I used to go to WH Smith in Liverpool Street for the last probably two years. I'd go there once a week and I'd look at the pads and the pens on the shelf. And I was like, you can't buy this until you've made the move and you're going to write the book. And then the last day of my job, I bought the pad and I bought a pen. Oh, oh that's so poignant. <laughs> shed, a, shed a little tear. <laughs> and, then and, I then... Re- and then I read a terrible book. Yeah. In that oh, yeah. so. well, well, we'll gloss over that. And then I moved to rural Sweden. Yeah. So. <laughs> now you've written an incredibly good book and Thank another you. one on the way. So yeah. that's super exciting. And the incredibly good book we will be reading at the Riff Raff on the 25th of January. I can't wait. We are so excited to have you. Um, tickets are purchasable. Is that word? Um, at the hyphen riffraff.com. Um, and on Eventbrite. 
um, and it's 7 to 9.30pm at <laughs> Social in Brixton and we can't wait to have you I can't wait either yeah, thank you so much for coming in thank you very much for having me thank you thank you, thank you. The Riffraff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards come say hey at the-riffraff.com 